0: I invite you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, well Acts chapter 6, but I'm sure it's on the same page or around the same page, Acts chapter 6. We'll be reading from uh, the very end of Acts chapter 6 in just a moment, but it's always good to be with you uh, this morning to sing praises to God, to worship together, to learn more about his word, and what I hope we'll be able to do for the next few moments is learn as much as we can from this section of scripture uh, as we read through um, what I would say is a very great and impactful sermon. But when you think about sermons today in the first century, even before the first century, there's a lot of rejection. There is a lot of lessons, themes of the Bible. There's a lot of rejection of, of just, just, just plain teaching just in Bible study. And uh, this happens when you're just evangelizing to someone. This happens just in a situation like this right now where someone preaches something or we teach something from the Bible and one or several just won't have it. Uh, And in this story in Acts chapter 7, you have an example of what I would say is a very powerful and impactful sermon, but the crowd, they just would not accept it. They didn't want to accept it. So what they do is... They completely reject it. At the end of Acts chapter 6, as we meet a man named Stephen who was an evangelist, it says that this is one of the people, one of the men that the uh, church shows chose to, to serve at a greater capacity. And in verse 8, it speaks a little bit more about Stephen. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council." They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their eyes on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And then in verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest then said, Are these things so? And we'll pick up there in verse 2 in just a moment. But I, but as I was just saying a moment ago, Acts chapter 7 is one of the great sermons that we have in the Bible, particularly in Acts. It's one of the best sermons, I think, uh, that, that has ever been spoken. Uh, and, and I do think that it was very powerful, and for a couple reasons that we're going to look at this morning. But though Stephen preached nothing but the truth, the crowd at the end of this story, spoiler alert, rejected him and the word itself and killed him for it, and killed him for preaching nothing but the truth. And... When you get to the ending and you see that as the result, I think it can be a little bit discouraging. But we need to learn how to evangelize just like Stephen in the midst of such hostility and opposition. We need to learn to have the boldness that he had. We need to learn to be able to speak about the Bible with the same level of clarity and the same level of conviction as he did to people who I think he had a pretty good idea already of what they might do to him because of their vitriol, because of the the vehement hatred that they had for what he was going to preach. And so, with that being said, thinking about that fact, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 2 of chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 2 through 50. Now, a word of warning. I know that when I said we're going to read verses 2 through 50, probably there were a few people in this room even that thought, oh no. (laughs) Or maybe, oh, this this might be a boring one. I would just caution you because... I think that's the same kind of attitude or mindset that the crowd had as they heard Stephen speak these words. So as we read the words of Stephen, and read this sermon, make sure that you don't think in the same mindset as this crowd that ultimately rejected it and killed him for it. So let's pick up in verse 2 of chapter 7 thinking about that. He said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God uh, had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, And said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And then in verse 9 we move from Abraham to the patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the story of four, uh, the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being mistreated or treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel, who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt." saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations, whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the god of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, that most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now, we'll pick up in verse 51 in just a moment. But let's take a breath. (laughs) All right, so that's, that's verses... 2 through 50. And in fact, we read even a little bit before that at the very end of Acts chapter 6. That's quite a bit of reading, I understand. But it is a very great sermon, I think uh, the scriptures indicate. Stephen the evangelist, as he is trying to make a point, a very convicting point to these people, this crowd that obviously does not have the right uh, attitude about what he's preaching, Jesus, as we already saw at the end of Acts chapter 6 this is the route he takes. Now, I think when we look at this, and and frankly, I wish that we could spend more time on the nuances and the details. We just simply don't have enough time to do that. And so what I want to focus on is, is why Stephen goes through all of these things and really why it was the most helpful sermon that these people could have heard or listened to. And so as we Think about why this was the case. It's because, first of all, it it was a bold message that he was bringing to the people. It was bold because as he's preaching through these things, these are things that Israel would have known. It was their history, in fact. But as you go throughout that history, Stephen doesn't stop there. Because when you pick up in verse 51, it says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. And so all of their history he goes through, ultimately to get to these three verses where he says, you want to know why all this is important? It's because you think that you're on the side of the good ones, when really you're on the side of the bad. All of the people that he brings up are people that they would have greatly respected. His sermon was so incredibly bold. And why was it? Because if you're preaching the word, it will always be bold. And as he preached the word, as he preached the gospel to these people, he tells them that they're really spiritual descendants, not of Abraham or Joseph, not really of of Moses, but they're spiritual descendants of the ones who persecuted them. When you look through that portion where he talks about Abraham, in verse 8, they have this, this beautiful sign of the circumcision. And what that does is show, hey, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a physical descendant of Abraham. And what Stephen here is saying is, you don't act like him. Because Abraham, he did what God said. And here is God telling you what you need to do now, which is obey and follow after Christ. You won't do that. And so what side do they fall on? Not as sons of Abraham, but as sons of disobedience. Well, you go on even further from that as he talks about the patriarchs, Jacob and Joseph, and even in this point, as, as, as uh, you know, he's talking about this, this history of their people, history of Israel, you have even more uh, faithfulness from their fathers, but they're still not showing that kind of faithfulness. You move on to Moses, which was their, their main contention, that he is he's really trying to disrupt, you know, our faith in God. He's trying to disrupt the law and Moses, which is kind of interchangeable. And, and he's really di- uh, blaspheming against this holy place, the temple. And so as he gets to Moses... <laughs> What history does he bring up? Moses was a faithful servant. He was a faithful prophet. And what are you more like? Not faithful Moses, who only preached God's word, but you're like the ones who said, who made you a ruler over us? And repudiated him and rejected him. And so all throughout what he's doing is bringing up things that they would know ultimately to say, you're not the people that you love so dearly. You're acting like the people who betrayed and murdered and oppressed them. And ultimately, that comes to a head in rejecting Christ. And so, why is this such a good sermon? Why is this such a bold sermon? Because Stephen was not willing to hold these things back and say, you know, you're the man, as Nathan did to David. He tells them that they've never really obeyed God's law or cared to. They they talk so much about Moses, and yet if they really focused on Moses, they would recognize Jesus. If they really focused on Moses, they wouldn't have had all these issues that the Pharisees had to constantly be be rebuked for as as hypocrites. Because as we were talking about in the Bible class, they were rejecting weightier matters of the law. He tells them that they never cared about God's house, that they never cared about God's worship. They just acted the part the entire time. So why is it bold? what should we take from Stephen in his sermon here as we think about the boldness that the word inherently brings or that it should bring? And so just a few points of application as we think about how he preaches to these people. And first of all, as you think about verses 51 through, uh, 51 through 53 especially, we need to be able, like Stephen, to make application. We need to not be people who just read the word and only read the Word, but we need to be people who read the Word and then consider how to integrate it into our lives. Unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of Christians who only read but never consider how to make application. They they learn trivial. They only merely learn trivially the scriptures, but they don't live it out. In 2 Timothy chapter three, if you'll turn there for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter three and verse six, Paul writing to Timothy, he, he talking about people to avoid, men to avoid. He says, "For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses." In verse seven, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that describe me? Does that describe you? Always learning, always reading, but never making the proper application. We need to learn how to make the application that God intends for us to make. And in fact, you know, I, I was thinking about this uh, throughout the Bible class. There were several things that I thought, uh, you know, we uh, that I could bring up just in this point alone. But one of the things we talked about was that the Jews they they separated themselves from the praetorium because they they didn't want to be associated with the Gentiles. Now. One thing that I, I think sometimes um, we, we forget about the Pharisees with their traditions and, and even the Jews to some degree, separation is preached in God's law and in the gospel, in fact. The problem was not that they were separating. The problem is that they were separating from the wrong things. And as we were talking about that in the Bible class, they were separating from the Gentiles, but were they separating from evil? No, in fact, they got, they got headfirst into the sinful... The, the sinful in nature and environment of putting Jesus' blood on their hands. When God says that he wants his people to separate from darkness and to separate from sinfulness, he's, he means what he says. But sometimes I think even today, just like the Jews in the first century when, the, when this was happening at the crucifixion, we, we talk about separating from darkness, separating from those who, who practice the deeds of darkness. And maybe we kind of do something similar. We, we, we uh, don't engage maybe in, in, you know, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when it comes to a brother who has gone astray and is unrepentant. And we say, okay, well, I'm not going to eat with him. I'm certainly not going to eat a meal with him. Because that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But you know what we can do? I can go to the Super Bowl with him. And you know, I, I can we can go out and we can, you know, play golf together. And we can do all the same things that we used to do. Might I be not realizing the point that God is making here? What what I've done is I'm just reading for trivial knowledge, but I'm not reading to apply anything. But but I'm applying it in one degree, but you're not applying it the way God expects you to. And and one of the reasons that I think that we need to focus more on the boldness of the word and the boldness of Stephen here is because he's not afraid to make this kind of application. Because a lot of times people don't want to make the application. They just want to, you know, kind of, um, uh, what's the the term there? They're, they're, They're trying to ease their conscience They're trying to not feel as as obligated, as responsible, as culpable when they read the gospel. And so what do we have to do? Not just in our evangelism, but with ourselves. We have to be willing to hear the gospel and apply it to ourselves. But we also need to be just as willing to bring this up to others when they're not willing to do that for themselves. Because it is going to be difficult. Especially in our teaching the Bible to others. In our evangelism, we need to be able to ask convicting questions. We need to be thinking about how to clarify and and clearly uh, approach people as we ask them, are you living the gospel out in your life? Have you been truly converted? Because I think that's another question that that often sometimes we ask when it comes to uh, evangelizing to others and we're not necessarily ready for the answer. Well, we need to be. If we're trying to ask... Applicable questions, if we're trying to help people in making the right application. And frankly, sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable, just like it was for Stephen. Obviously, these people were angry with him, but did that stop him from speaking the truth? Now, was he just was he just trying to offend people? No, he wasn't trying to offend people, but he was preaching, again, a bold and offensive message. The cross is offensive, it just is. Because when you come to it, you realize. What you've done, you realize who you are in the sight of God, and that's not easy for anybody. But does that mean that we get to just say, well, then maybe because it's so harsh, I can't preach anymore. No, that's not your call. Maybe because it's so hard to receive, I should soften the blow. That's not your call. You need to preach the truth. Make sure that the only offense is coming from the gospel, not from, not from me, not from my pride. But we need to be willing to make this kind of application even when it is uncomfortable, even when it is difficult. Do you really think that they wanted to hear that they were God's enemies instead of his people? That they were really sons of disobedience instead of sons of faith, Abraham? No, that that would be incredibly hard to hear. And likewise, it's hard for religious people and non-religious people alike to hear you have done what God has condemned. And what that means is you're on track to be eternally separated from him. You're on track to hell. Now, when we preach that, just like Stephen, we shouldn't just be saying that with a grin on our faces, but we need to be saying that with conviction. I don't want this for you. But this is the inevitable end of your decisions of of opposing God, of being His enemies, of doing the things that He says He has condemned. Now, am I willing to ask these questions when it is uncomfortable? This happens a lot when it comes to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There There was one guy who came to me and asked me a question uh, because I, I had said something about First Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 where Paul says when, when, about partaking the Lord's Supper, you need to make sure you're doing so in a right manner because if you're not, if you have sin in your life, what you're doing is you're drinking damnation on yourself. And he was in a bad situation. He was, he was in unrepentant sin. And he came to me and asked me about what I had said about the, for, that First Corinthians passage. And, and ultimately what he said was, well, I guess my main question is I, I should probably stop participating in the Lord's Supper. And I said, well, no. What you need to do is stop sinning and keep partaking of the Lord's Supper. Partake of it the right way. He wasn't willing to make the hard application. And it, it would have been really easy. And, and I mean, it would have been more comfortable to just say, oh, well, I, mean, I guess maybe, yeah. But that's not my call. My job is not to say, Let's make this as, as, as let, let's make this as soft as possible, regardless of what God has said. Let's compromise on the truth, regardless of what God has said. My job is to repeat the Lord's words verbatim. And guess what? Just because I'm a full-time evangelist this doesn't mean that it's only me that's responsible for that. Every single person in this room that has put Christ on a baptism, that's your job too. So am I willing to make those hard words challenging convicting applications and ask that of others this happens a lot when you're talking about baptism when you talk about that one true baptism in Ephesians chapter 4 what inevitably comes up all kinds of questions well what about this what about that am I willing to stick to this question does, does your baptism look like that that we find in, in Acts does it look like the one that we find in the New Testament if it doesn't what does that mean for you are we willing to ask that kind of a challenging question when we talk about the Lord's church, that there is one church, and there and you could just the list goes on and on and on. But are we willing to to not just let things go because it would be uncomfortable, but to say this is what the Lord says? Are you abiding in it? We need to be willing to make those uncomfortable challenges, those uncomfortable applications in our lives, and as we evangelize to others. And I would just say, thinking about this whole sermon from Acts uh, seven verses two through fifty, this entire sermon. When you look at how Stephen goes through this history, as he goes through this case, he really is making a case. He's laying the foundation for people to say, okay, I agree with this. I see what he's saying here. I can take this. Ultimately, to get to the end, the application where he says, this, now this part is hard. Because everything you just said you agree with, really, you have been doing the opposite. Now, what this takes, as, as you see on the screen, and as we see with Stephen, it takes a comprehensive knowledge of the Scriptures. And what I mean by this is sometimes we, we, we memorize certain passages throughout the Bible. And I think this is good. I think that there is, it's good to memorize Scripture Have memory verses, especially when it comes to something like baptism. It's helpful to know that I need to go to Romans chapter 6. That I need to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 where it says, now baptism saves you. That I need to go over to to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 where at the very end of that sermon Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's good to have those things down pat in our minds so that way we can go to them immediately. But we need to get to the point where, like Stephen, we can answer people's questions not because it's only the couple verses that I know, but because I know the Bible. Because I know the Lord, and I know my Father, and I know what He wants. Because truly, like Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, that I'm I'm not just treating the Word like a, a fun fact for the day, but it really is bread that I need daily, that daily nourishment. Again, it's good to know those things, to have those kinds of, 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 of things memorized in our, in our brains. But when it comes to something like baptism, I'm afraid that what we tend to do is we, we tell people about the necessity of baptism, that, that this is what you need to do, but we sometimes forget or neglect the depth of why. We need to be able to tell people, this is the reason that you need to be baptized. That, that Romans chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 3, Acts chapter 2, and several others, God says you need to be baptized. Yes, but why? Because this is the only way that you come into contact with his blood, with his death. This is the only way that you are transferred into the heavenly kingdom. This is the only way that you can attain that salvation, that resurrection from death. And, and, and go further and further, we need to be able to tell people not just that this is what God has required, but why? Because it is supposed to be fundamentally changing and transforming. And maybe one of the reasons that we struggle so much is because we don't realize that it is supposed to be so transforming. And it's not just with baptism, but I think that's a really good example. But the, the boldness of the word, if we know it, it makes us bold. Because all I gotta do is repeat these words and rely on the power of God. And I'll tell you, that's the best thing to rely on. I can be pretty confident in that. And so it's the word is bold and that makes Stephen bold. But not only that, we need to understand, I think, the purpose of the word. And and as you look at these, again, these words in verses fifty one through fifty-three, the purpose is to reveal where you stand before God. And Stephen does that, I think, so beautifully. He shows the crowd who they were in God's story. They weren't the faithful. They weren't like Abraham or Joseph or Moses. They were the unfaithful. They were the enemies. Instead of being, you know, Moses, who who led the people out of... A lot of times what we tend to do, just like the Jews, in this moment, we like to look back at history and say, Oh, I would have stood up in this moment. I would have been the guy to say, This is wrong. There's actually kind of a... It's kind of a funny, but a very... Uh, striking story, there was a man who was, I believe, one of the staff members of Gorbachev. Or not Gorbachev, it was uh, Joseph Stalin. And I mean, you know the kind of atrocities that that man was a part of. And after everything was said and done, after he had been put to death, th- this man really, he kind of repudiated Joseph Stalin's ways, and, and he and he said, you know, this was wrong, and I hated that I was a part of it. And one day, someone came to him and asked him a question, saying, why didn't you... In the midst of all of this terrible, brutal tactics, why didn't you, in the midst of these atrocities, speak up and say something then? It's easy to speak up now. Why didn't you say something then? And in response, what he said in Russian was, Who said that? Silence. And then he said, That's why. Because in the moment, it tends to be a little bit more scary. In the moment, it tends to be pretty blinding doesn't it? The point of the matter is, we like to think that I would be the guy who would stand up and say, this is wrong, and I'd be willing to take the consequences. And a lot of times, and I hope that that would be the case if something like that happens in the future, but a lot of times what we've proven in our lives is that, no, I would have been just like that guy. How do I know that? Because of the things that I've done, even just recently. And so, but, but Stephen is able to, to, to show these people who they are in these moments and in these stories. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 very quickly. I think this is interesting because here we see one of the, the purposes of the scriptures and specifically the Old Testament. It says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It was written for our instruction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 6 and in verse 11 it says essentially the same thing. That these were written as examples for us to learn from. We are supposed to be able to see ourselves in God's story. We must be able to do that. Because if we are not, we're going to start thinking a little bit too highly of ourselves, saying, oh, I would have done better, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. But how was the crowd to know who they were in this story? Very simply, like we were talking about a moment ago in the first point, they just needed to apply the word, they just needed to put themselves in that story. They, they, you, you get to Acts chapter 7 and verse 8 as it talks about that circumcision and talks about Abraham they wanted to be associated with that so badly and in fact they had that they said you know we, we are sons of Abraham but kind of like when Jesus is speaking to, to Jews he says I mean are, are you really in John chapter 8 well, we're sons of Abraham we're sons of the circumcision we've never been in bondage which is kind of an interesting thought because I mean they had but regardless of that Jesus is, kind of challenges that are you sure because whoever is enslaved to sin is in bondage but they thought automatically, because we're physical descendants of Abraham, that just means that we've we've got a blank That means that we are automatically in. And what Jesus says is, no, you've got to act like Abraham. If you want to be sons of somebody, you've got to act like they are your father. And and, and so they weren't willing to apply that word. They if, if they just put themselves in this story as Stephen does for them, they, it would have revealed to them early on that they were not like Abraham in spirit. They were like the ones who ultimately disobeyed and didn't, and, and didn't have the same level of faith that Abraham did. They never would have thought that they would have been the ones to persecute Moses, but they opposed the one who Moses said was going to be greater than him. They opposed the one who Moses said is coming after me. And again, all they had to do was just look at the scriptures but they weren't willing to, they, weren't, they may have been willing to hear it yearly. They may have been willing to read it through, but they weren't willing to truly make the application. So how are they to know? They just simply need to make the application. It's the same with us today. What this means is that we, when we don't make the application that God intends for us to make, when we don't see <laughs> the same things that these people were supposed to see, what it means is we are really in the same boat ...as the ones who persecuted Moses. When we don't have the faith of Abraham... ...what that means is we're not his spiritual lineage. We're the spiritual lineage of someone else. And I think we really need to make that that point... ...when it comes to uh, all of the Bible. We are supposed to be able to do this with all of God's word. When you look at a story like Genesis chapter 3... Sometimes when we read that story and hear Adam and Eve, you know, see what they do. I've heard people say, Christians say things like, it's all Adam and Eve's fault. Every pain that I have to go through, every discomfort, every struggle, every affliction, it's all Adam and Eve's fault. And you know what, to a degree, I understand, yes. I mean, they are the ones that first sinned. They're the ones that through that sin brought death. (laughs) But when we say that, are we forgetting maybe that I have sinned as well? We're forgetting that I am just as much a part of that story, that I have completely missed the point. I have sinned against God. I have broken that covenant. I have broken his law, and therefore, I deserve death, just like Adam and Eve. Are we missing the point because we're too focused on, if they would have just done their part, I wouldn't have to suffer. I wouldn't have to work so hard. When it comes to stories like Numbers chapter 22, and we read about Balaam, do you read through that story and think, that's interesting, a donkey talking? And then don't go any further than that, because I tell you, the New Testament brings him up a few times in in First Peter chapter two, First Peter chapter two, and verse fifteen. It's interesting because in First Peter chapter two, in Jude verse eleven, in Revelation chapter two, or Revelation chapter two, and verse fourteen, it brings him up constantly to make a point. And in verse uh, fifteen of First Peter chapter two, as as <coughs> it's actually Second Peter chapter 2 Peter chapter two. 2, Peter chapter 2. In verse 15, as he's speaking about false teachers, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, in verse 12. In verse 15, he says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In Jude 11, in Revelation chapter 2, he makes the same point that for, for, for the sake of gain, for sordid gain, and, and rushing headlong into the era of Balaam, they, they are vanquished, they perish in the rebellion of Korah, or in the punishment of Korah. And ultimately what they're trying to do is make the point that I think some people were missing. You're acting just like Balaam. You may be saying, oh, I love God and I would never do anything to to, to sin against him. But what what have you been doing? How have you been living? You've been willing to fudge God's will to make your life better, to make yourself happy. Because ultimately doing God's will is not what's making you, giving you joy. And frankly, I think a lot of Christians do that today. They're willing to compromise for earthly gain. But guess what? You may not have been the one who taught Balak to tempt Israel. As the New Testament brings up, especially in Revelation chapter 2. You may not have been the one who gave Balak the idea. This is how Israel brings a curse on themselves. Because no one can bring a curse on God's people. Those whom God has blessed. But they can separate themselves from God. Here's how you do it. I may not have been the one who came up with the idea. I may not have been the one who gave Balak that, that, that notion. But when I, just like Balaam. Follow after that error for the sake of gain. Compromise on God's will. I'm in the same boat as him. And you look at his end. It was bloody. Because that, that that is the end of all of God's enemies. You're in the same boat as God's enemy. And I think this is the same. Especially when it comes to the crucifixion. We in fact sing a hymn called I'm the One. Do we understand that, that the, the purpose of this hymn is not to say... I wouldn't have been like the disciples who fled. I wouldn't have been like the soldiers who put the nails into his, into his hands and his feet. I wouldn't have been like the Jews who, who ultimately betrayed him and put him up on the cross. I wouldn't have been any one of those people. Really, we were, weren't we? I'm the one who shouted crucify. Was I there? No, but I did sin even though I knew that it would put him up on the cross. And so we were, are we missing the point? Do we see ourselves in that story? We need to be able to. And how dangerous it is when we can't make the connection that God says you need to in our lives. When we read through these scriptures. Don't, don't get high and mighty on ourselves and think, well I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been in that, those people's shoes. I wouldn't have been in that same boat. Yes, you would have. Yes, I would have. And you want to know how I know because I've already proved it. Because I did sin against him. And so finally we we talk about the boldness of the word, the purpose of the word, but now we end with the response to the word. And this is quite different from what we see in another portion of scripture, but in Acts chapter 7, finishing out the, the chapter here, Acts chapter 7, picking back up in verse 54. Verse 54 of Acts chapter 7, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but began But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And so there's the end of the story. There's the end of a a lengthy sermon. And, (laughs) spoiler alert, the application we make there is not, if the preacher preaches too long, this this is going to be the inevitable conclusion. You know what the application is? When truth is taught, people can't understand and they can still reject it. In fact, when you look at the connection between Acts chapter 7, verse 54, and Acts chapter 2, and verse 37, it says the exact same thing. They were cut to the quick. They were cut to the heart. Each crowd understood the, the word that was preached to them. The difference is how they reacted to it. Each crowd knew what Stephen was saying. You are guilty. You are culpable for your sins that had to put Jesus on the cross. You are culpable. You are in the same boat as the ones who persecuted the prophets. Each each crowd knew what they had done. The difference was in Acts chapter seven. These people said, "I don't want to hear anymore." They literally cup their hands. They won't hear it, and they rush him and they stone him. They put him to death. In Acts chapter two, when they understand, they say, "Okay, what must I do?" And isn't that just the question of the Bible? Not well. When do I have to do this? How soon? Or, you know, where does this have to be? No, it's what must I do right now? These are the only two responses. These are the only two choices we have when we're presented with the truth, with the gospel. Just because it cuts to the heart, that does not mean ultimately, of course, I'm just going to accept it. People can still reject it. And that doesn't mean that you haven't done your job when you have preached the truth, when you have evangelized to someone and, 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 and people still decide, I'm not going to hear it. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just going to keep going the way I've been going. People could have said about Stephen, Stephen did a terrible job. Look at the result. He died. They put him to death. He did a terrible job. But look at his reward. Yes, he was put to death. But, but do you think that when he opened his eyes... In paradise, that he thought, man, I wish I'd preached that differently. <laughs> I think that Stephen, being the faithful man that he was, and even with his last words, did not regret the sermon he preached, but was commended by God for it and ultimately was pleased that he could, for the joy of his master, die for his cause. And so we need to be like Stephen, who at every cost preached regardless of the result. We need to be like Stephen and not like the crowd who was willing to hear everything that God had given to him regardless of the cost. And so maybe as we close the the lesson this morning, we need to ask, who would you rather be? The crowd who put Stephen to death and we know where they're heading. Hell, damnation. Or do you want to be like Stephen who, yes, he did have to suffer and he suffered big on this earth. But look at where he ends up. Who do, you, who do you want to be in that story? Put yourself in the story. Make the right choice. Are you willing to hear everything that God has given to you, everything in the gospel? Make a confession based on that belief. Be faithful in those things and repent of everything he says you need to do away with. And be baptized into his death to rise a newness of life. You can have that life this morning. And if you're a Christian and you've wandered away from that, you can make your life right before you leave this building. Don't leave this building Without full assurance and confidence, that should this be your last moments on earth, that when you see the judge, when you see the creator, you're going to hear, Good and faithful servant, well done. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand, as we sing.